This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by SIBO Digital. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Before we proceed with this week's episode, I would be remiss not to remind you to subscribe, give us a thumbs up or leave a review. We really value your feedback. We're three years into this podcast and listener feedback is some of the ways that we source new podcasts, new episodes and new content. Share your thoughts with us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line money reimagined. And tune in every week to catch us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or find our feed on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Today, we'll be taking a look back at this year, year in review, 2023, uh, never a dull moment. I'm joined today by our guest, Avichal Garg. Avichal is a co-founder and general partner at Electric Capital. He is, prior to that, a successful serial entrepreneur who had executive-level experience at Google and Facebook. And I will say, over the course of my acquaintance with Avichal, he is one of the most knowledgeable on the tech side of things. So there'll be a lot of shows this year that are going to recap the wild ride that this year was, the media headlines, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, the enforcement actions against seemingly every exchange based in the United States or touching the United States in any way. But I actually wanted to have a different conversation. Because beyond all of that storm and drong, beyond all the drama, beyond all of the media moments, whether constricted or otherwise, there was a lot going on in the build space. Under the hood, behind the scenes, sometimes quite quietly, builders were building. And I can't think of a better person to talk about that. What happened in 2023, what that portends for 2024 and beyond than our guest today. So if you told, pass it over to you, uh, and maybe we can start with just well, maybe we should just do a really quick hit on <laughs> the drama of this year and, and yeah. how you're feeling about all of that as somebody yeah. who is invested in the space. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Your NPR voice is impeccable. That was such a good <laughs> intro. It's like so smooth. <laughs> it's really awesome. I'll take that home. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> yeah, you can tell you've been doing this for three years. You're a pro. <laughs> so yeah, drama the last year. Yeah, it's been, I don't know. It's been pretty wild. It's actually also at the same time kind of crazy to think about. It's only really been a year, you know, since yeah. a lot of this stuff yeah. sort of went down. And I've sort of, you know, one of the things that I think happens in crypto too is you, and maybe it's a post-COVID thing, but you sort of lose track of time. So I also kind of don't have a sense of like, when did some of these things happen anymore? But yeah, it's it's been, you know, between CZ and SBF and, you know, Bitcoin ETF feeling imminent. There's just, it just feels like there's been a bunch of moments here that the world has reacted to. You know, the, the thing we always kind of think about or look at when we are thinking about some of these market things is um, there's basically a signal, which is how many people want to talk to us. And for most of this year, nobody wanted to talk to us. It was great. <laughs> you know, like no, no person, you know, on the institutional investment committee, you know, the side of the house or anybody on the generalist VC side or, you know, just AI, but more generally, like AI has just been so dominant in the broader narrative Yeah, that crypto is just sort of off the radar. I mean, even, you know, this particular audience that's listening to this is obviously really in the weeds, but like when I talk to our uh, LPs and they have investment committees, you know, mostly we raise money from like the university endowments and healthcare foundations and sort of like these large nonprofits, um, mostly US based. And we ask them like, what do their boards and their investment committees think about? And crypto is just not even on the list. So while everybody in crypto is like, wow, we're back and like CZ is cleared out and SBF is cleared out and we've cleared out all the junk and like the fraud and, you know, all, all of this stuff has been cleared out. Most people outside of crypto don't even realize that that's happened. Like it's all sort of internal drama for us that most of the world is totally tuned out, actually. 
which I think bodes really well. I think that's that's when real value gets created anyway. That's when the builders are kind of heads down and the engineers are writing code and there's no distractions and all the grifters, you know, I, I always say, I always joke, if you were an NFT grifter two years ago, three years ago, you're probably an AI grifter now. You know, like all the grifters <laughs> have left. So you kind of have to be like a little Wait, bit of a crazy person yes. to be writing code in crypto right now. Yeah. We, uh, well, that's when all the value is created. Or committed, right? And we've talked about this on the show as well, which is this, you know, I put it maybe more, even more bluntly, which is, you know, a lot of the sociopathy like has now been flocked to AI. And, and yeah. personally, I think that's a lot worse for humanity in many ways, yeah, um, but it remains factually accurate, right? Like a lot of that, the opportunity, quote unquote, in quotes, is kind of seen as being in the eye space. And opportunity, I mean, yeah. making a quick buck or making a big name for yourself or being splashed without a lot of substance. You can't really do that in crypto anymore, yeah. right? You, you, are, you are infamous here because you are seen as a, a scammer or, or someone's come after you in an enforcement action or even like a criminal case kind of way, you know, yeah. or you're uh, infamous or famous because you're building something really hard and interesting. And there's kind of only the groups that are left, all the sort of like yeah. hangers on, sort of like yeah. they're hanging yeah. on elsewhere. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly so, right. so let's get into that. So, so tell me, because builders are still building. I mean, you yeah. still have a bunch of port codes and they're still, they're still chugging along and doing all kinds of things. And we yeah. are seeing, I think, some consolidation, a little bit of that kind of acquisition <clears throat> kind of moment is happening a little bit. Um, so love to get your thoughts on that. But also, like, what are the things that, that you've, you're watching getting built in real time that you're really excited about? Yeah. So I, I guess, um, you know, our lens on this, we do uh, Electric Capital, we do this annual developer report, and we publish all the data publicly, and we're working on the, the next update of that. But the last time we updated the data, it's, you can just go to developerreport.com and see it. Um, we, did a, we did an October update. And even in October, kind of, you know, this is before you know, the, the recent run in prices, but even kind of in the depths of the bear market, we had about 20,000, looks like 19,279 monthly active developers is what we counted. And, you know, our methodology only looks at open source. So this is not, does not count Coinbase employees or Anchorage employees or Circle employees, like none of the closed source stuff. So I think you can very reasonably round up to, you know, 25,000 is not a crazy number. And that's only people writing code. Yeah. That doesn't count product managers and designers and, yep. you know, partnerships, people and BD people. Is it crazy to say there's, 40,000 people a month in crypto. And that's a lot of people. That's, you know, like a Google or a Facebook, you know, scale. Like that's, that's an industry scale kind of number of people. Uh, and for the last two, three years, like in the depths of all this craziness, people, those 40,000 people have just been writing code and building products and shipping tech and getting partnerships lined up and just making progress and just grinding away. And I think, you know, it's hard to conceptualize large numbers, but 40,000 people working 40 or 50 hours a week for two years is a lot of manpower. That's a lot of people making a lot of progress. You know, what we see at the ecosystem level is just, is just a lot of progress. And so the way we think about it is even kind of on a slightly longer term time horizon. Like two years is a long time, obviously, but we've always thought about technology kind of on 10-year waves. I think that's roughly the right way to think about it. And if you rewind about 10 years, go back to like 2013, the world looked really different. Like Facebook had just IPO'd. You know, Uber was sort of starting to go global. Instagram had only been acquired by Facebook a year ago. Like WhatsApp, I think was just acquired in 2013. I'm trying to remember. You know, just the world looked, it was just like OpenAI had not been founded. You know, like the world looked really, really, really different. Um, and so 10 years is a long time. Like a lot can change in 10 years. And it's hard for people, I think, to conceptualize that. And so they, most people generally underestimate what the next 10 years look like. And so if you go back to like, I sort of start counting history somewhere around like 2017, 2018, which is um, the ICO boom and, and kind of that yeah. last ETH cycle. And I think if you go back and look at all of the ideas from that cycle, a lot of the ideas were right. They were just too early. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by like 2019, those things didn't materialize. And so a bunch of people are like, oh, this stuff's a scam, like shut it down. None of this is ever going to happen. 
But if you take the lens that that would take about 10 years instead of two years, then, you know, probably by like 2027 or 2028, somewhere in that zone, you would really start to see a lot of those ideas come back. Yeah. And and now that we're like five years into that, like five years into that 10-year cycle, the way we think about it is like, we're, we're actually kind of roughly on track. So if you go back to 2017, 2018, there were all of these ideas, right? Like ETH is going to move to proof of stake. One day there will be, you know, stable coins on chain. This DeFi thing might happen one day. There will be custodians. There might be an ETF one day. Um, you know, we'll have regulated exchanges. There will be regulated derivatives markets you know, from the CFTC. Like, you can, you know, you can start to, you know, zero knowledge proofs will be performant one day. The L2s will take, you know, we'll scale all this stuff. You can start enumerating all of those things that were sort of, oh, one day this will happen. And it's kind of amazing because basically all of those things happened um, five yeah. years later, right? So, so kind of if you pop your head up at the end of this year and you look around, you're like, wow, there are $125 or $150 billion in stables. The L2s are doing more volume than, than ETH L1. There's alternative L1s that are actually live and, and have their own robust ecosystems. You look at the Cosmos ecosystem with, with DYDX moving over. You look at Solana and kind of the activity that's happening there. The Near ecosystem, you know, you start poking around. You're like, wow, that's all, that's all real. The custodians are here. Like Anchorage is a fully yeah. robust product. You have Circle, you have Falcon X, you have Fireblocks, like all the infrastructure exists. The zero knowledge proofs are all performant and you have networks a lot of that. You, sh you can start enumerating all of those things and you're like, wow, yeah. all that stuff is actually real. And so from an infrastructure lens, we kind of look at this and we say like basically all of the things that people thought would happen by 2019 just took a couple of years longer, which is totally to be expected if you understand the history of technology and they're all real now. And so the next five years really are about how do we actually take the fact that this tech now exists and it's possible finally to do all the things that we we're talking about and actually start bringing products to market. And so, and we're starting to see that happen too. You know, you start looking at like the DeFi ecosystem and, uh, and you know, what Circle has accomplished with, with stables or, uh, you know, base um, and, and sort of some of the recent announcements Coinbase has made around, um, you know, supporting KYC and bringing, mm -hmm. bringing those people into an L2 you look at you know things like Maker or Frax having decentralized stable coins. You know a lot of like that ecosystem is now real, and so we're just starting to see people move into can we actually build applications here? And can, are there actually real things that people can do? Which that was always sort of the promise, and so that that looking forward is actually what gets us really excited. Yeah, and I think and it's interesting because I think we get a lot of accusations at the end, a lot of the industry, which are like, oh, you know, this isn't relevant for the average person, blah blah blah. But again, like the core use case was not a consumer product necessarily. You know, it, it's it's complicated and it was complicated in part because of the environment it was trying to disrupt, which yeah. was different from just, you know, communications or sending pictures or whatever it is. Yeah. It was, it's different. It's complicated. Uh, but also because the technology is really complicated and fundamentally re-architecting the underlying yeah. infrastructure around a transaction is really hard. And so when you say, you know, 40,000 developers or sorry, uh, people um, and you look at that developer number and extrapolate to the broader community around it, you know, all of that is really hard. You know, marketing yeah. this is hard. Creating design totally. around it's really hard. Like all of that is an order of magnitude, if I may, you know, harder yeah. than some of the things that I think had immediately viral, if you will, use cases. Not to mention a lot of the nonsense and shenanigans that happened happened in this industry because it was poised timing wise with yeah. the advent to your point of social media and Twitter and, and the ability to make information about an opportunity again in quotes go viral really fast uh, without sort of um, the ability to better verify who was even you know announcing that opportunity or, or relaying it to the world and that's not something that happened in the early days of the internet you didn't have yeah. that same viral ability to kind of capture yeah. the imagination of an, an average you know layperson or an average retail user so it's a different context. And so while the good took the same amount of time as it took 
in that context, the bad was able to happen a lot faster because of the context in which all of this emerged. And I guess the interesting thing going forward is to think about, you know, as we do pull out of the bear and get into this, this, I would say, more calibrated and stable, you know, bull market, right? Are we going to see a run like last? I mean, who knows, right? But as we get yeah. to something that's a little bit more calibrated and the market's pricing in things in a more sophisticated way now, right? Where it wasn't really doing that before. It's not just all, it's just not all noise. There is actually some signal there because they be identified and you can differentiate. As those things start to happen, I guess the question is, you know, what is to stop uh, those those mechanisms still exist? So what's to stop hmm. the next sort of pump and dumps, you know, from, yeah. from, launching, you know, and yeah. that is a challenge. And I guess the hope is that people will have felt burned. They'll be more, they'll stress test things a little more, but I don't know, I'm skeptical. And and I say that <laughs> watching the run to AI, because I'm yeah. pretty sure that most people engaging with AI, apart from ChatGPT, using it, but people who are kind of thinking about putting their money into it or supporting a product don't really understand anything about how it works. And they still don't know that here. So I'm just curious, like the tech we're talking about is really hard to sum up, right? And at what point do you think we get to a place where that just becomes invisible and irrelevant and just strictly, you know, under the hood kinds of things and really are, you know, evolving that application space? Yeah. You said a lot of things here that, that I think are worth touching on. So, um, you know, one, I think you're absolutely right that the internet didn't have the internet to bootstrap off of. And so there are, I think, two side effects to that. Um, I think one, which we see in all facets, you see it in AI, you see it in crypto, you see it in financial markets, but you also see it in, effectively in information marketplaces is that yeah. information can spread much more quickly. And so what you have is essentially dramatically increased volatility because the delta between perception and reality is, is, has never been this wide. And, and it's, it's a side effect of the internet. And so, you know, figuring out fake news or information mistruth, mistruths or, you know, where value will accrue in AI and the hype cycle around how much companies are worth, like all of this stuff is sort of a, a side effect of that. And so it is a little, you know, we talk about it internally, it's just like, you know, it is a little bit unfair um, to judge modern technology markets by prior cycles because the the speculative ability for capital to pursue these opportunities has just never been like this. And so it is a, a, a sort of a post-social media, post-internet phenomenon, I think. And, and AI and crypto, I think there are the first markets that have to live with that reality, you know, like mobile and cloud and, you know, the internet itself didn't, didn't have this sort of infrastructure to bootstrap off of. And so we didn't quite see that speculative activity in those markets. So that's, that's definitely, I think a thing, you know, another thing to sort of think about uh, specifically in the, in the crypto context relative to AI is I think I, my, my mental model for this is that AI is a little bit more like mobile and crypto is a little bit more like the internet. And what I mean by that is that the internet was tremendously disruptive and we didn't really have great analogs to what that thing was so there were like these great videos of bill gates or jeff bezos trying to explain to david letterman or jay leto like what right. the hell is the internet or why would yeah, i care yeah. right yeah. and they just don't get it and it's because the, the analogs are so tough whereas mobile i think the analogs made sense to people and and if you look at kind of the innovation that happened around mobile was tremendous boost to productivity. Like mobile is, is you know, everybody has a mobile device. Um, and, and so it's been tremendously, and there's a lot of innovation that happened there. But specifically, I think if you think about disruption, I would assert that the disruption was relatively narrow relative to the internet. In that, like, if you look at the big winners on mobile, yes, you got Uber, which was interesting. You got Instacart, interesting. But a lot of the value flowed to the PC manufacturers like Apple. Uh, it flowed to Google, which owns Search and Maps. It flowed to Facebook, which was already the biggest you know, social app on the internet. Mm -hmm. 
And so it, it sort of accrued to the incumbents because a lot of what you needed was the distribution and then a lot of your network effects or your CapEx advantages carried over really cleanly to mobile. Whereas the internet was tremendously disruptive because as an infrastructure, it was so disruptive to the legacy businesses. And I think that, that there's actually an analog with AI and crypto, which is I think AI is going to be transformative. There's a lot of innovation and technology breakthroughs happening there. But I think it's disproportionately going to benefit the incumbents. Like there'll be great startups created. It's not to say there isn't, it's not a great place to be investing or anything, but you know, like Microsoft with Azure, AWS, Google, uh, tremendously, you know, tailwinds. AI is phenomenal for them. Uh, NVIDIA, AI, AI is phenomenal for them. Um, you know, any business that has proprietary data and has a ton of distribution has a, has a structural advantage with AI. Whereas, mm -hmm. whereas with crypto, the incumbents are not set up to succeed. And, and that's part of what makes it so much harder, but it's also part of what fuels, I think, the speculative nature of it, because the people who can see that can see that. They're like, wait a second, this is like the internet in that the incumbents yeah. are not going to win. And yeah. so in terms of like where you're putting capital and obviously not financial advice, um, but it's really interesting because I think the market structure and the technology lends itself much more to disruption. And anybody who realizes that sort of, you know, sees that and I think thinks about these markets very differently. So that, that's kind of one observation. And then another thing that you said, I think is really interesting around use cases and complexity, which is, I think there are sort of two or three key markets that are, that are being developed here in parallel inside crypto when you kind of zoom in. One is the infrastructure itself. This is just mm -hmm. computational infrastructure. It can run yeah. code. It has a different architecture. You can run it in a distributed way you know, on the edge. And it's permissionless and has some really interesting properties, you know, an open you know, permissionless database that anybody can read from or write yeah. from. Like really interesting properties. That's sort of like one dimension of, of innovation that's happening. That's hard for most people to understand. Like unless you're deep in computer science or if you're a developer, like you understand that stuff, most people don't write and ship code for a living. So it's just, it's, a, it's an esoteric thing for them. Yeah. And it's hard to get your head around. Um, but that's real. I mean, that's like Amazon, it's AWS, that's mm -hmm. Azure. There's like many, many, many hundreds of billions of dollars of value that's created by, by tools like that. Two is, is financial applications. And what's interesting is if you look at something like stable coins, um, you know, with the US dollar, I think one of the challenges we have in the West, um, and this is why I think TradFi and Wall Street and so many people in US government don't understand how powerful this stuff is, is actually if you're inside the US, you have the US dollar. And the financial system kind of works and you have yep. credit cards and you have yep. credit and works well enough for most people. Yeah. It, yeah. It works pretty well for most people. Now it's, it's not to say there aren't improvements. Like, you know, there's ex right. exploitation happening, there's payday loans, there's yep. people who are unbanked. So it's not perfect, but for your average Senator or your average chief investment officer or, or your average, you know, middle-class upper middle-class person um, on the internet, like the, it's not a problem. That's there's, there's no problem there to solve for them. It, it kind of works. Um, but that's not the case internationally. For most of the world, they have broken currencies with high inflation rates. They would much rather have access to the dollar. They often have to think about things in dollar terms anyway, because that's how goods and commodities and business yeah. you know, is priced. Um, many people don't have access to any reasonable financial products. They don't have access to credit. Um, so, and so these are like very visceral and consumer problems for these people. And so there's, in my opinion, probably, probably anybody who has a phone that's outside of Europe and the United States understands these problems. So that's like 3 billion people, um, yeah. maybe four. Um, and so most of the world actually, I think, does intuitively understand these problems, but it's a, sort of an American phenomenon that we don't really understand these. There's a great, I, I've told a story a couple of times that I, I really think captures this is, um, is uh, David Foster Wallace gave this commencement speech at Kenyon College, um, which is a great one. It's sort of on like not trusting authority and, and everybody should go listen to it. But the little part of the story that, that I think captures this is he tells this uh, parable of a, an older fish swimming by two younger fish. 
Uh, and uh, the older fish nods to the two younger fish and says, hey, boys, how's the water today? And the two young fish kind of nod back at him. And then they keep swimming. And then after a while, uh, swimming um, upstream, the, the two young fish, one, one turns to the other and says, hey, what's water? And, and I think the U.S. dollar is like financial water. <laughs> like the Americans just don't see it and the rest of the world sees it. And if you could see the financial water, you would understand like why this is so important. And, and actually like, you know, it's sort of an interesting, almost philosophical question, but is like, is money a consumer product? Um, and, and I think for, for a lot of the world, money is a consumer product and they get it. And then the yeah. third is, you know, I think the emergent use cases that you're seeing on top of this technology, things like, you know, the NFT ecosystem with collectibles or video games, um, with, uh, with luxury goods, you know, you're seeing like, uh, um, LVMH did a drop. I actually just got an email uh, this morning from uh, G-Shock, like Casio G-Shock, the like watch company, mm -hmm. which has sort of a, like a cult following. If you know, if anybody's into watches, it's, so it's not even Rolex. Um, but the G-Shock folks are doing an NFT drop, um, mm -hmm. like this this week or next week. Um, mm -hmm. For point one ETH, you can mint a, a virtual G-Shock, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Um, and so you look at those use cases, and it's really interesting because collectibles, video games, luxury items, um, social signaling. These are also things that billions of people understand. Like people under, like your average person understands Nike and Rolex. They understand Pokemon cards. They understand the yeah. Golden State Warriors and the Knicks as, as brands. Um, you know, they they play video games. But but actually, your like average upper middle class, you know, wealth uh, wealth manager or um, you know person who works at in the financial industry or you know a CIO, they don't play video games. Like they don't mm -hmm. collect Pokemon cards. Um, they kind of look at some of these like, uh, LVMH kinds of things as like unnecessary or like, they don't quite understand like, you know, um, how, how these brands work that, you know, you walk around Soho and you see what I call real world NFTs. Um, and they're like, you know, why would somebody stand in line for Supreme? Like none of this stuff makes sense to them. Right. They're like these, and they're, and they're not like lived experiences for those people. Um, yeah. and so it's really hard intuitively for those people to understand these things too. So I, I actually think like, if you start putting all that together, I think that's what makes this stuff so disruptive because it's actually... Um, structurally something that's hard for the incumbents to get their heads around. And it's it, it's a set of use cases that are actually monster end user use cases, but that the existing centers of money and power don't intuitively understand because they're not problems that they yeah. have. And so you put those two things together and you're like, that is a recipe for disruption. Like that's that's monstrously disruptive. a trusted partner for your crypto trading? SIBO Digital will introduce financially settled margin features on Bitcoin and Ether January 11th, 2024, with physically delivered contracts to follow, listed and cleared on SIBO's US-regulated exchange and clearinghouse, and complemented by a liquid crypto spot market for greater ease and access. We invite you to learn more about this and all applicable risk disclosures at SIBODigital.com slash Coindesk. That's CBOEDigital.com slash Coindesk. And the demographics play in favor of that too, totally. right? Same deal. I mean, no question. I think for yeah. me, what really clicked all of this, I, I did this pod a while ago about, about you know, what is Web3 and explaining it? And I was talking about the experience of watching my daughter who at the time, I think was eight, yeah. um, playing her game. You know, she was FaceTiming her friend in the corner of her iPad and talking to her, but then they were like in their game and they were like playing and they're bopping around with their, you know, purple mm -hmm. hair and they're like, you know, animal like wizards or whatever mm -hmm. following them. And and they were what they were talking about was how annoying it was that they couldn't take 
the avatar, all the stuff that they had spent so much time cultivating in this game. And you know, when they go play their other game, they couldn't like be that person, right? And then we got into a whole discussion about screenshotting and IP yeah. and all kinds of things that was really interesting, but I digress. You know, but it's like that fluidity between online and offline realities, that sort of expectation that some of the signaling is going to happen. It, it's become more and more important as Gen, you know, Gen Z Sorry. turns into Gen Alpha, even for millennials. Like you're seeing that, that extension of yourself into that online reality. That yeah. is not just social signaling. It actually has value. It has tangible and real, you know, crude value. Um, yeah. and how you define that value, how you capture that value, how you think about that value, how you engage with that value. You know, that is something that I do think it's very clear. Digital assets, crypto, blockchain, architecture, all of that is really poised to absolutely accelerate that, right? In, yeah. in ways that user-driven, which is the key, user-driven. Yeah. So I want to, on that point, you mentioned data a couple of times, and we talked yeah. a lot on the show about Michael, my origin story, you know, but mine really, I came into this entire space around concerns about data capture, uh, concerns about, you know, hacking of data, sensitive data, uh, encryption methodology, things like that. Like I didn't actually come to this space from the financial services side whatsoever, which is kind of funny given my yeah. own personal background, but that's well covered on the show. Um, but the data question is really, really key, you know, and, and what I find fascinating is that the same lack of awareness around the importance of a, a digital object, thinking of that as, as that about that as data, mm. it, it recasts the conversation in ways I think are actually quite productive. Because when you when you strip out the kind of like financial pricing and dollarization concept of this, and you think about a digital object as a piece of data or a unit of a thing that has value in different places, whatever that value may be defined, and that's contextual yeah. in many cases, right? That's one thing. The other thing I think that's really fascinating is to your point, which is exactly right, the reason that AI is poised to help incumbents is because the data capture has already happened. Yeah. And it's so far ahead, it's almost impossible to generate a competing data set that's going to generate the insights that are going to fuel your model, that are going to fuel all of that, right? And what is the biggest counter to that? Where it is actually decentralized data, using that term very largely. So say a bit more about that and how do you see that? Yeah. Is that going to be a challenge to AI? Do you see that as something that's emerging? How are you positioning that. Yeah. So the, the data stuff is interesting. It, it also, you know, on your first point, it, I think that it, it has um, tinges of another sort of historical analog with the internet, which is a lot of what you're talking about. It reminds me of, you know, there's, there's this moment in time, you know, like maybe 2005 or something where you could look at the data and it was basically, you know, how much time are people spending on newspapers? It was like a small bar. Mm -hmm how much dollars are, you know, how many dollars are spent on newspaper classifieds? And it was a really big bar, like billions and billions and billions of dollars. And then how much time is spent on the internet? Huge bar. Like people are spending hours a day on the internet. How much money is spent on online ads, the effect of, you know, online classifieds? And it was a tiny, tiny bar. And you're like, okay, that just has to reconcile. Like that has to <laughs> right, fix itself. Right. Like all the money has to move from the newspapers to online where right. people are spending time. And I think the analog for goods is very similar. Like if you're spending all of your time on the internet, like your, your daughter's playing video games, like you need to accrue social capital in those places. Um, and, you know, the ability to have digital goods that you spend money on that socially signal to other people. This is why skins are a huge market. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think to me, it just feels inevitable that that dollars have to shift. Like instead of all the money being spent on Birkin bags and like we're, you know, we're on a Zoom right now. You don't know what shoes I'm wearing. Why would mm -hmm. I spend $1,000 on shoes? It's just, it's just like it buys me no yep. social capital to be to do that. And so those dollars, I think, shift into the digital realm and and the way that they get captured is effectively um, in things like NFTs. Um, and so to me, that just that just feels inevitable. And I think um, what's to, to your point around the data, and this sort of touches on the AI thing a little bit too, is like the fact that 
the database around who has done what is effectively open is a tremendous advantage. And the fact that I can now have a direct relationship with you, if you, if you buy one of my NFTs, you and I have a direct pipe that circumvents the prior data silos of you know Facebook and, and Google have all the data, but now I can have a direct pipe to you that is not intermediated by YouTube or Facebook, tremendously powerful. And so when you start looking at it as a data network, um, you start realizing that there, it solves real business problems to be able to have yes. an open database yes. with open exactly. API and read access and write access and have a direct pipeline to you with a cryptographic signature so I can verify who you are. Like all of this infrastructure is actually circumventing a lot of the the power silos of the legacy tech companies and is tremendously valuable. Um, and I think and I think some people are starting to get their head around that and is is actually like as a data network, this stuff is really valuable and as a cryptographic, you know, uh, stable yeah. way to communicate and talk to people is is really quite valuable. Yeah, and these models are are so they're just emergent. They're they're, they're hardly baked, right? And so the mm -hmm. ways you're going to leverage that, we yeah. call it peer for sake of kind of a you know, really easy way to understand it. But the, the, but the the way to leverage that, I mean, no one is has really. It's so immature. It's so new, yeah. and this is stuff I'm most excited about is seeing what's going to happen when we're in this this world where we're kind of moving towards. The other thing I think that people tend to miss is there's this kind of sense of like, oh, well, we don't want a world where everyone's only online and stuff only matters if you're only online. And what I think people are just really yeah. missing is, and you'll know why I have this perspective, <laughs> is, you know, it, that is not how the world's going to work. We are going to be walking around, wearing our shoes, you know, seeing people, yeah. but also with an overlay that is virtual, totally. right? And whether this is augmented reality, XR, there's all kinds of different concepts of what this is going to look like. But wearables are are so immature yeah. in terms of what they're going to look like, right? And the idea that we're going to have a world that is just physical or just digital. We're not talking World of Warcraft, Cartman sitting in the basement doing yeah. the web. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. We're talking about being able to take these digital assets and interplay them in your right. real world experience as you're walking down the street. And right. the, you know, look, in the worst case scenario, I always go back to Minority Report, which I think was such a prescient film. Okay. And there's a couple of scenes in there where I Tom Cruise is running through something or some mall or whatever. And all these ads are like popping up at him and like, you know, androids are like telling him like, come and buy, come into the store and do whatever or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. Very premature and primitive and, and immature. But that concept of that overlay is very real. And yeah. thus far, we've thought about it in terms of like locations. Like we've done like the immature experiments around, you know, who's the mayor of this place or whatever, yeah. checking in that kind of yeah. stuff. Right. Which is, which is rudimentary, but it's a critical foundational block. And that went well in some cases and not in others, right? Understanding that. We've done community creation and building virtually, right? Around yeah. that is geo-fenced in some fashion. But when that all becomes real and becomes part of your lived experience in the world, it doesn't require you sitting behind a laptop, you yeah. know, and, and in, your, in your room, like in the basement or whatever, because it's kind of the visual I think a lot of people, especially older folks maybe kind of get, yeah. then you're really talking. Then you're really yeah. talking. Well, you know, it's interesting because this, this speaks a little bit to, I think, the demographic thing, which is, I think if you're... Um, in the older demographics, uh, or perhaps retired, the quote unquote real world is the analog physical world. Yeah. And if you're under 30, I would posit that the real world, quote unquote, is actually your digital world. If you spend 12 hours a day on the internet, like, and you spend eight hours a day sleeping, you're actually like <laughs> on the internet 3x more than you're walking around your neighborhood. Yeah. And so, like, your primary identity and your primary social capital and your primary network is actually digital. Um, mm -hmm. And so the real world is actually the laptop screen. And and the real world, as people sort of you know conceptualize it, is just the physical world. So the digital world is the real world, in, in my opinion. Um, 
And, and so, you know, a lot of the, one. Is it ready player one? Should we all just live in yeah, we're already there? Like, I think the metaverse is already <laughs> yeah. here and then we'll just have yeah. different interfaces to the metaverse and, and a laptop screen or, or a monitor is just one view into it. It just happens to be a 2D view. And then, yeah, we'll have wearable views yeah. into that. Um, and so what's actually happening is the real world has already gone digital because um, that's your actually your primary world. And we're going to overlay what we think is actually the primary world into our secondary world, which is the the world, you know, in your neighborhood when you're walking down your street. <laughs> and by the way, that's not a value judgment. It's like that sort of upsets some people or, or you know, it just kind of is what it is. You can just look at the dollars and you can it's look at the numbers and you're like, and this is where people spend their time. And that's just sort of the reality of the world now. Yeah. And there's no um, question that the pandemic accelerated this for a certain totally. generation, right? No yeah, question. Absolutely. And you don't really unring that, you know, because yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that was, they had to find accelerated it all. that work yeah, and accelerated it, you know, and, and then those habits kind of passed down to younger kids yeah. and, and, and that becomes a sort of new norm around this. Stuff. And, and there's lots of data outside of crypto to back this up too, right? You look at yeah. like the percentage of people who found their spouse online, for example, this yeah. is a graph that was getting passed around on Twitter in the last week. It just went vertical. Like in the last five years, it's now the number one, by far the number one way people find their spouse is it's online. It's the default way. It's the yeah, default, it's default. way. Fine. And I think we haven't quite, like as, as societies, especially because society, the power structures in societies tend to be concentrated in people who are older just by virtue of how, how network yeah. effects work and how money works and stuff. But I think most people that are actually um, in, in the power structures of society don't realize that it's inverted. Like the digital world is the real world. And the analog world, the analog physical world is not actually the primary reality for most people anymore. Um, and that, that's, I think that hasn't really fully been baked into society, that hasn't fully been baked into markets, that has not fully been baked into policy. Like, I don't think most people understand that that's, that's actually the default real world, so to speak, is actually a digital world for most people now. It's here already. Uh, yeah. you, you actually made um, a really interesting point on the AI side, too. Um, you know, I think, um, and actually, and, and I think your AR, VR point, too, you know, there, there are sort of three mega trends right now, in my opinion, um, in, in the same way that there was sort of mobile um, social cloud, um, were sort of all happening like in the late 2000, mm -hmm. sort of like post 2008, all of those things, because the iPhone happened and, yeah. and Facebook happened and, um, the cloud was happening with AWS, all of that sort of happened. And, and, and so actually sort of like three mega trends that were happening at the same time. I think there are actually three, at least three mega trends happening right now that are going to converge, um, and are actually different facets of the same thing. And it's actually AR, VR, crypto, and AI. Yeah, um, and they all just sort of converge over the next decade. Yep. Um, and that, that is sort of, I think what, what, you know, people think of as the metaverse today. And so when we think about a lot of this AI stuff intersecting with crypto, we don't think it's a different thing. We actually just think it's, it's the natural evolution. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like, you know, I think one of the open problems that we're thinking about right now is as content creation, as the cost of content creation goes to zero and somebody can create a deep fake of Joe Biden saying something, right? Like, hey, we're going to drop a nuke somewhere. Um, and that thing is indistinguishable from Joe Biden actually saying the thing. We got a real problem. Um, and going into a 2024 election cycle, this is going to be a real problem. Yep. And so you say, okay, well, how do I solve that? Like, how do I address that issue that AI can create all of this content at basically zero cost and and um, and spread it through the internet? Um, well, the solution to that you very quickly realize is, well, we need to we need to say that we actually we need to prove to you that we the White House actually created this video, and then we need to publish that that proof that we actually created this video somewhere that anybody can read. And you're like, oh, well, that's actually exactly what a public-private key does. That's actually what cryptography does. I can prove to you. <laughs> if only there were a way. <laughs> and if only there were a place that were a publicly yeah. accessible database that is right. extremely difficult to corrupt, and it would just yeah. cost too much money to corrupt that database, that uh, allowed me to read and verify that that signature is actually true. And you're like, oh, we literally need a distributed ledger with cryptographic signatures, like, and that's what crypto is. And so it turns out, like... A key component of solving the deep fake problem, I think, is going to be the exact same distributed ledger and, and cryptographic right. technology right. that this, right. this space has pioneered. I'll give you another example. Um, 
you know, I think um, we have uh, my mental model for like how the AI model universe kind of plays out is I don't think we're going to get just open AI and just Google and, and just Anthropic. The reason is that a lot of governments in a lot of um, parts of the world have realized that data center technology, um, you know, NVIDIA GPUs, um, you know, the capacity to have a team of people that understand how to build data centers and, and, and CUDA and understand CUDA and can build base models. All of these things are actually national security assets, right? Because if you're some, let's say, let's say you're a country in the Gulf, mm -hmm. do you really want uh, your population, uh, which is a very different, um, you know, religion than the people in San Francisco um, is a different country. Do you want to use a base model trained by a bunch of Americans in San Francisco as your country's base model? Like probably not. So what are you going to do? You're going to at the very least fine tune that model. And more likely, in my opinion, you're going to try to actually separate yourself from that model to have full control all the way up and down the stack. So you're going to build data centers and you can train your own base models, maybe on like, you know, Llama 270 or whatever Facebook, you know, meta sort of evolves that thing too. And you're going to use all this open source stuff to do that. And, you know, if like each of the Gulf states is going to do that, because there's also obviously factions there and, and different sort of belief structures, then like, is it so crazy that Israel wants to do that? Is it so crazy that actually Europe wants to do that? And then Russia has its own thing. And is it so crazy that like China, Korea, Japan, and Singapore all have their own variations? Like very quickly, you realize it's probably not just OpenAI and Anthropic and Google that are trying to build these base models, but there's actually like geopolitical and national security reasons for a bunch of base models to exist. And then you're like, well, if all these things exist, how do they all communicate? How do they all talk to each other? Like if I'm going to use apps or agents, you know, whatever you want to call them, in, in one of these spheres, and then I'm also going to use, I'm not, I'm not only going to be tied into open AI, right? Like when I, I very likely have to have to use models and agents across multiple tech stacks, how do they all talk to each other? How do they all pay each other? How does money movement work um, in this thing where like I might need to use a model from another country altogether and like maybe they don't take visas. Um, and so like the the emergence of, of an AI ecosystem, which is internet native, which means that it's not tied to a singular jurisdiction, and, and but all these people need to talk to each other. Um, sort of necessitates things like a 24-7, you know, micropayment infrastructure where these people can move money around that doesn't rely on the legacy infrastructure, which is, you know, like this correspondent banking, three-day settlement kind of nonsense. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's literally what crypto is Yeah, it's friction in a different way, right? Like interoperability requiring exchange of value totally. in, a, in a cl as close to frictionless way as possible is something people just haven't quite gotten their heads around. Exactly. Think of interoperability is an infrastructure problem, but it's yeah. an infrastructure problem that could have a value exchange that has a value exchange component to it, right? Yeah, and and exactly. part of the reason that it is complicated, expensive, hard, slow, whatever, is the friction around that transfer, which is really totally. complicated. So totally. it's not so much about the, the value in quotes you're assigning to the thing that is moving from, from place to place. It is about the ability of that thing to move from place yeah. to place in a yeah. manner that is similar, if not identical to the ways that we think about a, yeah. a crypto digital object. Which and is so all of these things, in our opinion, just like converge, actually. Um, yeah. You know, you we're know, like... like yeah. I had the luxury at the World Economic Forum of overseeing all of tech policy, right? And so part yeah. of what I threaded together was, you know, we can't have a conversation about metaverse, XR, AR, VR, you know, um, AI, crypto without having a data conversation. Like that's yeah. where I got to. And of course, that's my own bias. And I already talked about how I got into the space in that place in the first place. But that that is fundamentally what it comes down to, right? Because all of these things, that is where you see the unification and that convergence happening is around how you are treating that data and whatever, however you're objectifying that thing and moving it from place to place, that's going to have to involve, as you're saying, like some governance mechanism, right? Some sort of agreement, uh, encryption, you know, trust and all those systems. And again, those are fundamental aspects that were ready-made into the OG Bitcoin blockchain, but also into subsequent blockchains. And 
where they differentiate is how good they are at those attributes and at securing them. And also, frankly, at marketing them <laughs> to people yeah. to use, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and stress totally. testing them in those environments. So it's, it's going to be, at some point, this penny will drop. And I think we'll start to realize that all these conversations, like, People are often like, oh, you're the crypto culture. Why are you tracking, you know, AI legislation? I'm like, why on earth would I not be? Yeah, like, why are you so interested in IDAS? And, the, and I'm like, why on earth would I not? How could I possibly responsibly do this yeah. role without paying very close attention to all of those things? Because they are yeah. integral. And the ways we talk about them and think about them are going to create opportunities or lack thereof within the technology to actually unlock the value and unlock the, the application layer for, for so many things that I think are really critical to, yeah. to your point to kind of creating a new kind of disruption. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so much, so much. I mean, we could <laughs> keep going. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll close. I'm going to have to close this unfortunately, because I would have loved to go another hour, but you know, how, um, looking ahead, so given your 10 year time frame and that we're kind of halfway roughly like through that, right. How do you think about, so we, we've seen some building blocks that are pretty baked. We've seen some things that are kind of emerging and, yeah. and getting stress tested and some will survive and some won't. And they might like, you know, more for evolve in ways that are more relevant to, you know, the context. Um, but how are you thinking about, I'm going to force you again to do this. Yeah. So how are you thinking about this particular year? Okay. So yeah. let's call it, if you want to, in your, in your frame, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's the second half of that 10 year cycle, kind of kicking that off. You know, how are you thinking about what people should be how we should be thinking about this this moment in time. Yeah. So when we look at the space, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that's been built now. And so a lot of what we think about is how do you really take this infrastructure out to end users and solve real problems? Mm -hmm. And so the real litmus test is going to be, you know, five years from now, let's say roughly 2028. Um, do people even mention the word crypto? Right. Like there there's a there's a moment in time in um 2008, 2009 where if you were a seed stage startup, you would go talk about how you were a mobile app that did XYZ. And then by like 2017, like 10 year anniversary of the iPhone, if you said like, I'm a mobile app that does XYZ, if that's what you led with, people would just look at you strange because be like, well, of course you are. Like, why wouldn't you be? But just like, tell me what problem you solve. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the evolution I think we need to go to. And that's the real litmus test is like somewhere in the next couple of years, I think people that that will just sort of fade in the background and people won't be like, oh, I'm a crypto app or I need to raise from crypto VCs. It'll just they'll just tell you the problem they solve and be like, hey, I'd like solve this problem. I make remittance, I make remittances 10x cheaper. Um, yeah. I make it so that like reinsurance is 30% better. Mm -hmm. uh, I make it so that the California DMV um, can do uh, digital driver's licenses in a, in a distributed ID system where you control all your data and your permissions. Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't mention that that's the exact same cryptography, you know, from from Ethereum. Right? It doesn't matter. To your point, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That, yeah. That and so that that is like the shift we're looking for is like. Yeah. You know, people just starting to talk about, you know, um, we solve a problem. Let me tell you what problem we solve. And then and then secondarily, it's, you know, what is the infrastructure that you're using to solve that problem? And we're starting to see that happen, which is really, really promising. And, mm -hmm. and we're seeing it in a couple of different areas. We're seeing that in um, developer tools where people are saying, oh, there's this stuff is actually quite good to solve certain kinds of problems. Let me let me show you the tooling that we built that lets you mm -hmm. use smart contracts and distributed ledgers in a certain way. Um, we're seeing that in fintech. Um, and so... You know, you're seeing companies that um, are talking about using stable coins on the back end to do things like invoice factoring. And so it's like, look, U.S. Brazil has all of this trade volume. They're real businesses and they need to finance, you know, their invoices and, and just have like cash flow because they have, a, they have a sort of asset and cash flow mismatch. And that's those are that's a, you know, a multi, multi, multi billion dollar ecosystem. And we can make that better and faster with stable coins. Um, you have people talking about, hey, look, we can we can actually think about the on-chain universe as a giant capital market and your ability to borrow capital in that world. You just borrow capital for cheaper. 
And that's mm -hmm. a structural advantage. Like if I'm doing some sort of insurance company, one of my critical costs is where do I borrow money from? And I can now borrow, structurally borrow capital and my cost of capital is lower. Therefore I have a better business, mm -hmm. um, but they're primarily an insurance or a reinsurance company. Um, so, you know, that kind of stuff on the FinTech side, very real, um, you know, on the sort of applications of NFTs, things like video games, collectibles, um, you know, luxury goods. And like, if you look at the LVMH uh, drop or the Nike, you know, dot swoosh stuff, mm -hmm. they don't mention the word NFT. They mm -hmm. just call them digital collectibles. Um, and, and they're sort of, you know, they just, it faded away into the background, but what you're really getting is an NFT minted on chain, um, because it lets them do all the other stuff. They're taking advantage of all the open source and free tooling. And then downstream, they're dropping physical sneakers like the yeah. Tinaj, uh, you know, from Nike, T-I-N-A-G, which stands for this is not a JPEG. So the first drop that they did to their NFT holders was, uh, was a, it was a sneaker called the Tinaj, right? Or, um, LVMH doing a drop with, with Pharrell on their Via bags, um, you know, and so those users may not even realize that they're NFTs, and that's exactly what we expect. Same thing in video games. I think they're just people are just going to sort of be able to play games and not even think about the you know the word NFT will disappear into the background. Isn't it wild to think about a time when like the, the fluidity to move between these different worlds, right? Like when I think about like interoperable universes and the ability to kind of use digital objects to take it from place to place and have that just happen fluidly. Mm -hmm. Wow, you know that's going to be commonplace. You know, like I totally. think about my grandkids, like my kids now, like that's that's one of their biggest beefs is like, oh, but I worked so hard to get the one. And I can't use the one or the other thing. And I'm like, that really yeah. does kind of suck, you know? Yeah, like, yeah that's right. Restarting is terrible. A, it's terrible how, you know, yeah. so, you know, but um, but that, that's going to be a thing that just is so commonplace. And to your point, like wands aside, right? And like, you know, purple hair or whatever, like these kinds of collectible objects are going to be seen as, as just, it's going to be an expectation that you can just kind of take them from place to place the way that you could like take something from your closet and lend it to a friend and then get it back and then do whatever with it. And that impermanent ownership would actually attach to it, right? So you yeah. could kind of, track totally. where it goes and understand that and, and that we're going to have that same um digital sensibility that we have with, with all these real world uh things that we do without thinking about it it'll be just as thoughtless of an action yeah. i don't mean in a bad way but in like the yeah. good way the invisible yeah, yeah, that's right. happening and, i mean this is another area where we see a lot of really interesting activities like nfts apply as real world assets which then plug yeah. into DeFi protocols right the intersection of these things is pretty fascinating so the ability yeah. to represent a bond or you know like there's um uh, a company called 4K, which is an electric portfolio company, but they make it really easy to send in comic books or watches. It gets it goes to the same custodian that like the Christie's auction house uses. Um, mm -hmm. It gets graded and gets put in like a you know climate controlled room, and then you mm -hmm. get an NFT of that thing, and now you can actually put it into um, uh, into a lending protocol and borrow against that, right? Because mm -hmm. that has a market value. Um, so or you can fractionalize that, and now I can own like you know uh, a fraction of of a, of a watch, or I can yeah. sell. You know, if you think about it, a lot of these sneakers or watches or comic books or they're not actually you're not opening you know amazing spider-man number one and like trying to read it no no you, you like keep it in a sleeve and you don't touch it um and so you know one of the biggest challenges with that stuff is okay if somebody wants to buy it from me i gotta send it to somebody to get graded and then i gotta like make sure i package it up and it doesn't get lost in the mail and i gotta buy insurance on it all of that goes away because i just sell mm -hmm. you the digital thing that entitles mm -hmm. you if you want to go redeem and burn the nft you can go get it from the custodian um and so you know this stuff just i think becomes seamless and, and all these things sort of converge and then I think, you know, increasing what we're seeing, uh, you know, I use that California DMV example very purposely. It's a, um, one of our portfolio companies called Spruce ID. But literally, if you go through SFO, the, you know, the California DMV is promoting this app where yep. you can get the California DMV app and you get a digital driver's license. And what's cool about it is it's not just a photo of your ID, but it's actually the DMV 
making certain attestations that you can then cryptographically sign off on. And so, you know, the use cases really open up, like, you know, you can never worry about leaving your ID at home again, (laughs) or, you know, you you go to a bar and, you know, it's your college, you're 21 year old woman in college. And do you really want to show the bouncer, you know, that your, what your home address is every time you go, that's, that's, no, you just want to prove you're 21. And now you don't have to put your thumb over it strategically. Like we all do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, like mobile notarization just got super easy, right? Like, So as infrastructure, we're there's so um, at the beginning in so many ways, right? Yeah. I, I, I feel every time I come and I talk to you know the developers and, and and get in that company level, it's why I'm so happy and and honored that I live out here uh, among so many people that are working in this space all the time, right? Because the way that they think about it and talk about it, the vision, we're not, we're just not even, we're we're on our way there because you know to well, it only became possible. I mean, like to to go back to the beginning of the conversation, it only yeah. became possible in like the last year. To do a lot of these things, right? All those building blocks are hard, 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 hard to build and had to be secure, had to be again tested. We had to we had to have some of like the washout of this stuff, you know. So and we had to have the time, I think, where there wasn't the distraction of number go up, number go down, number go here, number go there, everything is blockchain, blah, blah, blah. People couldn't really just heads down build. And 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 again, so I'll close us where we started, which is builders not only have been building, they are continuing to build. And what they are building as it fits together, if you think about this almost modularly, as this all is going to start to fit together. And it's not just crypto, it's fitting together AI, it's fitting together uh, data, it's fitting together you know, XR, all these different things are coming together and there is going to be a convergence. I love the way you talked about mobile apps versus just doing a thing. We are, we are. I feel like it's, we're, we're, we're getting there. You can really feel it. You can feel it when you yeah. talk to folks, you feel it the way people think about things. Um, I wish that the popular understanding of this stuff was, was more along these lines. And, and uh, hopefully this has been a, a, a illuminating to, to those of you um, in our audience. I know many of you are, you know, you come here for this sort of more layperson understanding of where these things are going and how to understand them and how to make sense of this world and why it's still so hyper relevant and so important, despite despite the year of drama that was yeah. 2023. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Abhijal, for joining from Electric Capital. Such a pleasure always to chat with you and have you on Money Reimagined. And for all of you listening, uh, have a wonderful end of year and we will catch up with you soon at Money Reimagined. 